broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Good morning, guys in the studio and morning listeners. How are you guys in the studio doing? Doing very well, thanks, Steph. Yeah. Keep Had a good week? It's been a big week, actually. Uh, big week in sport. I don't know if you've been watching, uh, but a couple of very, or a few very notable uh, uh, outcomes this week in sport. Uh, hats off to Lewis Hamilton, yeah. seven-time world championship. Uh, seven-time world champion equals the great Michael Schumacher's world record for seven world championships in the Formula One. Uh, Dustin Johnson wins the Masters uh, this week as well. Uh, you, came second. Cameron Smith, the Australian golfer. Uh, yeah. And I don't think many people would actually know who Cameron Smith is, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> I number two. He's, he's new on the on the on the tour. Is he uh, Brett? He oh. hasn't got much of a profile, but. Not much of a pro, pretty low key. He's 27, so he has been around for a while. He played He played in the President's Cup. He was one of the players in that. So you don't get into that without having a good track record. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, Joel, just on him, he's the first person to ever shoot four rounds in the 60s at that tournament and not win. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Which shows you how good Dustin Johnson played. Yeah. Uh, and when you think about Dustin Johnson, I mean, this is a guy who was actually banned uh, from the tour for, for drug, uh, for taking yeah. some... Uh, some Recreational. Recreational drugs uh, <laughs> five years ago. And, and ever since then, he's sort of really turned his game around. But never never been able to win the Masters up until now. And uh, married to Wayne Gretzky's wife. Yeah. Uh, sorry, not wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wayne Gretzky's daughter. I haven't had a <laughs> So he's, he's doing well on and off the field by the looks of it. <laughs> I've got to ask, what's the news doing in uh, at Collingwood? Is there any any great news coming out of there, John? Oh, Collingwood. I think we can put them to the side for the time being. It just is that that's just depressing. But as a as a as a as a new uh, Queenslander adopting their new state, uh, give, got to give it up for the Maroons as well in the state of origin. Apparently with Absolutely, the worst team they've been in 47 years and they've been able to beat New South Wales again. Yep. Yeah. Massive week. <laughs> and just in Victoria, how many days are we on a street now for, for not having any COVID cases? So we're up to about 20? 20 as of yesterday and hopefully yeah. it's 21 today. I don't think it's, has it come out yet this morning? I don't, I don't think it has. I haven't seen the numbers yet, no. Has, has anyone got any bets on whether the Queensland border will actually be open before Christmas? Because I'd, I'd really uh, like to take a holiday. I'm betting it will be. I think it will too, yeah. You think? It's a matter of how quickly they can announce it so we can all book and, and plan. Well, actually, I, I've I already booked. <laughs> I, I think they're going to um, sit tight on any announcements uh, pending uh, South Australia and what happens with their outbreak. Um, yeah. But but I, I would say by Christmas they'll be open. I tell you what, I've, I've got some friends in uh, South Australia and uh, there's quite a lot of whinging going on for their six-day lockdown. It's kind of hard to feel empathetic when we've been in a hard lockdown for, for most of the year. So. Yeah. Hard enough, SA. That's what I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Hope she's not listening. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. actually, speaking of listeners, must say, spoke with a, a UGC client last week who uh, hadn't spoken to for quite a while, and he says, oh, yeah, but I listen to you clowns every Friday. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> nice feedback for it. You want to oh, give the out. first name of that client? We don't need to identify, but just uh, a, a big uh, shout look, out. Nick or Noel, if you'll 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 be you'll remember that conversation. Okay, right. There you go. We'll keep it quiet. Maybe we should change our theme music to uh, to some circus music. <laughs> I was thinking the Betty Hill theme. I'll get now, my saxophone out. We might kick off with the first topic to the day, and I, I'm actually going to start with Louis because it's keeping in the theme of opening these borders up. Uh, you've been getting quite a lot of questions around, should I be spending money on holidays at the moment? You know, people are trying to de-stress after lockdown. Do you think it's a good idea? There is a lot of pent-up demand, and we are getting a lot of queries from people um, um, asking, it's a funny thing as a financial planner, people ask uh, your permission sometimes to spend their own money, uh, <laughs> which which puts me in a bit of a position of power. It's not all clients, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll add but it's just some of them. They want to make sure they're doing the right thing. Uh, so the question we're getting is um, coming out of lockdown, what about holidays and, and splurging or, or should I be saving my uh, my cash that I've been able to stash away uh, for those people who have kept their jobs uh, through this pandemic uh, and, and their income has remained same or similar, uh, but their expenses have come down. So now they're sitting on a pile of cash but people are just chomping at the bit to get out of their home and take a little bit of a break and have a holiday. Also, the media is telling people that um, that tourism is really hurting and the government's getting behind it and encouraging uh, encouraging people to go out and spend their money uh, in their own backyard. So um, people in Sydney are told to get to rural New South Wales, people in Victoria, uh, as of last weekend, being told to... Uh, get outside that old ring of steel now that it's gone. Uh, and so I guess if people are asking my opinion on it, well, my opinion is is you got to do the right thing for your own health, and in this case it's specifically mental health. Uh, I think holidays are, are an important part of a balanced lifestyle, Um and is for a lot of people, it's really important to have an escape from the situation that we've all been living through uh, since February, March of this year. Uh, should you go out and just splurge willy-nilly? Well, it's a little bit up to you and, and what you need. Uh, and, and what I would emphasise there is coming down to the value you get for what you spend your money on and the values that you hold to be important to you. Um, I'll refer to something else, which is that the Productivity Commission came out with a report. Uh, sorry, what I should say is the federal government came out with a, a report by the Productivity Commission this week. Um, they've been a little bit criticised because the report was actually handed to government five months ago and they haven't done anything about it. Uh, but this productivity report uh, says that mental illness in Australia is uh, is estimated to cost the Australian economy $220 billion per year. Incredible. Now, that is 11% of our GDP. Uh, that's a lot of money that is either being lost by um, or spent on... Uh, mental illness. 
Uh, now that that incorporates a few things. Uh, it incorporates uh, lost work and productivity. Uh, it incorporates um, the the people that have to lose work because they're caring for someone else with mental illness. Um, it also tries to put a cost on suicide and the lost productivity that comes from that uh, and the flow and effects from that. So it's it's a really comprehensive and far-reaching uh, estimate and forecast of what uh, mental health um, or, um, uh, or or lack of optimal mental health is having on the Australian economy in general. Now, there's always this... Uh, th these two considerations. One is the public health elements. What should we tell the mass community to do as a government and set our policy accordingly? And then the other thing is, what should I do as an individual? Because what an individual does is not always the right thing for the individual if they just follow the government advice. The government advice is there to influence the masses and have the majority of people go one way or the other. Um, so what should the individual do uh, when they're getting these messages around the importance of mental illness, uh, but also these messages around take a holiday? Well, the two are linked, I think. I think they go somewhat hand in hand, um, but not exclusively and not completely. For example, if you're thinking of going on a holiday and really splurging some money, just make some considerations around the other things that you could do with that money. Um, if you're planning your holiday and you arrive at a budget of a few grand, well, just pause and reflect on what the alternative would actually be to do with that, uh, with that amount of money. Um, if you were to spend that same money but in a different way, then what could you do with it? Also, when thinking about uh, these things. It's not just money, it's also the time and effort involved. So if you're going to take the time to go on a holiday, then once again, what could you also do with that time? Uh, so what could be considered as an alternative is, well, what about your own mental health? What about the time and effort that you could put into your own mental health? And I'm not saying don't go on your holiday. What I'm saying is just order and think about uh, what is best for you from where you are right now and what you actually want your mental health to be in future. Yeah, nice. Oh, look, I can tell you right now that uh, this has been a trying year for most people and uh, I, and I would not be surprised if... I'm not surprised that most people want to get out of Melbourne at least. Um, I certainly know that I'm, I'm hanging out for that break uh, and... Uh, just recalibrating. I mean, if, if anything, what I find that is useful for myself, getting away over Christmas time, it's a beautiful time for, for us and our business because it's a time where we generally have very little inquiry. Most people are away on their own holidays and it's a great time to just sit back and reflect and, and think about what's occurred over the past 12 months, what you want to get out of the year ahead but just get into that headspace where you're not in the day-to-day -day grind of, you know, life. And, uh, and, and I always find uh, that, that getting away for a few weeks over Christmas time is, 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 is one of the, the most beneficial things that I've done, even without COVID, even without the trying year that, uh, that we've gone through so far. Uh, you know, I've always found that uh, just that mental break more than anything um, Usually I'm punishing myself over Christmas time. Uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but, but mentally, you're I'm on a health kick now, though, Joel, aren't you? 
<laughs> Mentally, I'm feeling fantastic, right? <laughs> Just a little slow. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I, I would second that. I think it's super important to take a, take a break, especially um, this this year. I think everyone has been working some incredibly difficult hours um, just to get by in COVID. I certainly know in my business we have. Um, and to be honest, everyone's a little bit ratty <laughs> that I'm yeah. dealing with. I think everyone's so tired and you don't have to spend a, a fortune on a holiday. As you said, Louis, it could even be just into to regional Victoria just to take a bit of a break. Although probably every, everyone in, in uh, Victoria will be <laughs> out and about. But yeah. it's just nice to see something different, isn't it, really? And yeah, just have absolutely. a bit of a break from, from your home. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and I'll be I'll be taking a holiday. In fact, uh, next weekend I've got something just for uh, just for a Friday night and a Saturday night planned. Yep. Uh, and I think what's important is well to take it up to a, a different level. I think what you are looking to achieve from a mental health point of view from a holiday is to get yourself out of the cycles that you're in in a stressful situation or a stressful environment. And, and I'm not suggesting everyone's workplace has been stressful. I'm suggesting everyone's environment has been more stressful uh, as a result of the pandemic. Um, so if you can get out of your current environment into a different environment, then like you say, that reset is really important. And the other thing for a lot of people is a lot of people have, um, have fallen into habits or taken up habits that are not helpful towards good mental health. Uh, me personally, I have uh, got a lot worse in my habits of checking my phone yes. and scrolling yeah. through news feeds and, and things like that. So uh, if I'm going to take my holiday, I want to make sure that on that holiday, I don't just continue that same bad habit, but in a different environment. It's so, a circuit breaker, yeah. Exactly. It's a circuit breaker uh, and, and use it to your advantage. Uh, same thing, uh, and Joel, like what you're saying with the Christmas break, the, the big advantage of an extended break is you can actually have a number of consecutive days where you don't think about work, you don't think about the problems that come with it, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it allows your brain to get out of its thought patterns that naturally happen every day and start adopting different thought patterns and brain patterns. And once you have reset those patterns, then you can look at problems fresh and from a new perspective. Yeah. Louis, does the Productivity Commission uh, make any recommendations in regards to government or public policy uh, that perhaps could be adopted uh, on a wider scale? Uh, it does. Probably the biggest criticism that productivity has at the moment is that the current system of uh, mental health services is fragmented and there's a lot of overlap between some services and there's a lot of gaps between services as well. Uh, what I've read is not the report itself, only the, the articles on the report. So I don't know what the range of recommendations are, but there is a lot of them. Um, uh, one thing that mentioned is is that suicide and suicide prevention is a priority, uh, and and putting in place um, uh, more structured processes for for follow ups because uh, uh, twenty five percent of people who attempt suicide go on to make another attempt uh, at a later time. Uh, 
but following a suicide attempt, only 50% of people actually engage with a, a, a helpful service after their attempt. So looking to try and drive down that ratio of uh, suicide reattempts. Um, children is a priority uh, in their yeah. recommendations. Probably the main thing worth noting, Joel, from a, from a headline perspective is that what is suggested is that for, um, for, for recommendations that have an estimated cost of $4.2 billion to cost the, the government's budget, which is not a small amount of money, uh, but the estimated return on that investment of $4.2 billion is a 20% uh, is a $20 billion uh, improvement in productivity and GDP. Mm-hmm. So uh, the recommendations that they have come out with, being the Productivity Commission, it is very focused on the bottom line um, and looking at how they can actually drive those outcomes. Um, so... Did, did the report actually cover all of the time that we've spent in COVID? I mean, what, what, what is the sort of dates on what they've been looking at? Uh, the report was uh, was completed and handed to government five months ago. Right. So it incorporates some of the period of time of COVID, yeah. but not a substantial amount. Um, yeah, because that's going to be interesting, the next one they run, to see what really has happened, because it's, it's almost the tip of the yeah. iceberg, isn't it, to know really what, what the stats are. Yeah, as far as the problem goes, yeah, that's mm. right. And and we've already seen over the last six months uh, a huge amount of uh, of new investment from governments into the programs that are already there. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, and there are some recommendations uh, from the the COVID world. There's also a little bit of uh, scepticism that COVID and that situation actually hampered the productivity in a commission in finalising the report. Um, so I guess it's a, a bit of a, uh, a positive and a bit of a negative, yeah. um, including some of the COVID situation. Uh, but as an example, um, a suggestion that the new um, telehealth appointments for psychologist video uh, appointments by video conference um, being re- recommended not to leave it as a temporary measure, make it a permanent measure. Uh, and, and that's been a, a call which is echoed just for regular GP appointments, mm-hmm. but the reason why they're not going to um, continue uh, the Medicare rebate on GP uh, appointments over video conference is the um, uh, is the risk of fraud and people ripping off the system. Uh, so, again, I guess you just got to look at what is the cost and what is the benefit, and unfortunately, some people do abuse the system. Mm-hmm. That's Did interesting to actually- say that. Oh, no, I was just going to ask, has anyone actually used a doctor's service via um, a video, video conferencing? No, I haven't. No, no I haven't. No. But Steph, uh, I was just going to say that it, it's interesting that uh, the uh, government is a little bit wary of this. Um, it's a huge trend in the United States at the moment, telemedicine. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we just uh, closed out a position in Teladoc um, just this week, uh, which was up around about 170% in the last 12 months since we recommended it. Uh, and Teladoc is one of the leading telemedicine uh, providers in the United States. And I suspect that it's a trend that's going to continue, um, mm-hmm. just whether or not um, it happens now or at some point in time in the future is the question here in Australia, yeah. I guess. Mm. Well, it's an interesting one because I'm not sure how I'd feel about having my appointment online. It's just kind of a little bit not personal. So that's Still, the other thing that plays into it, I guess. For people in our demographic, which is, you know, 
anyone aged 20, 30 or 40, most of mm. the time we go to the doctor, it's a one-off visit. That's because right. it's a new yep. thing, we need it diagnosed, we need a, a and, and we need a prescription to recover from it or, or yep. a, a, a program to recover from it. Whereas um, a very large portion of GP appointments are repeat visits right. for yep. ongoing conditions. And I think yep. uh, online visits would very much help people for a condition that's already diagnosed mm -hmm. for follow-ups mm -hmm. on how it's going. Yeah, and also people that, that really are um, quite ill and have to leave their home would be much harder for them as well. So I suppose there's there's a lot of good. Same with sort of regional uh, locations and rural areas. I think yep. that's another one where it would really benefit. Yep, yep. And if you think of any um, doctor's appointments where the doctor says to go and get a blood test, uh, that might be face-to-face -face for the doctor mm. to get a, you know, a, a, do their physical checks of your body. Um, but once they've done that and they get a blood test result, well, then maybe your follow-up GP appointment would be online because yeah. they're just reading the results and, and, and mm. adding the, the next steps. The other thing is if, uh, coming back to, to this topic, um, if you're seeing a GP uh, for a mental health condition, because remember, GPs are a, a major portal to, um, to mental health services. And it's worth mentioning the government's program where through a GP, a GP will arrange a, a mental health plan for you and include a number of free psychologist sessions. That number used to be six free or subsidised uh, psychologist sessions uh, and is currently 12 free psychologist sessions. So to get access to 12 free psychologist sessions, if you can visit your GP by a, an online video conference and get your Medicare rebate for it, uh, and then get your, your 12 uh, psychologist appointments, again, done over a video conference for which you get Medicare rebates or, or subsidy or is actually uh, entirely free, uh, well, then you've got all these services uh, without leaving your house, which mm -hmm. just makes it that much more accessible. Um, yeah. And with, uh, with, with some of the stigmas that, uh, that a lot of people feel around mental health, it just means that it's a lot easier to keep it a bit more confidential mm -hmm. uh, and lower those barriers to, to accessing them. Yeah. Also comes back to David Guest saying the productivity side of things too. I guess if, if you're, um, you're not running late for appointments, somebody's on, on their computer and it's a, a very different scenario too, isn't it, than having to yeah. travel there and, and be late for an appointment. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the productivity side of things uh, is mm. definitely worth uh, referring back to the, the podcast with David Guest, mm. uh, which was, I've just got the list up here actually. Uh, which one was that? That was a few weeks ago, but I was I was also looking to refer to uh, another episode from a few weeks ago with with Jen Bishop. Yeah, uh, uh, I know that one is episode number one one one. Yeah, all, all these things tie in mental health with productivity, with overall happiness and fulfilment. Mm -hmm. um, also with financial success, it's much more yeah. challenging to have success with your personal finances. Um, if you're um, uh, if you're also being challenged um, by uh, a, a mental health and uh, and potentially illnesses that are holding people back, yep, coming yep, back please. to the holiday side of things, yep. again talking about government programs and rebates. Another announcement this week was about the Victorian government uh, planning to offer two hundred dollar travel vouchers 
for people to get out into uh, regional Victoria. Mm-hmm. So look out for that scheme coming about. Um, that'll be open to people who are looking to spend uh, more than four hundred dollars on their uh, on their holiday. Um, they'll be able to get a two hundred dollar subsidy. Are we putting our hand up for that? So yeah. are I. <laughs> so are I. Yeah, for sure. Um, a, a few states have similar schemes. Uh, New South Wales uh, put out a voucher scheme, uh, not for holidays specifically, but they handed out um, uh, four $25 vouchers for food and entertainment. That's right, yeah. Um, uh, that one, it's got, a, it's got a funny little name, like get out and about. Hey, was that South Australia, Louis? Uh, th- no, that's New South Wales. Oh, that's South the Wales. out and about scheme. Yeah. Uh, but South Australia has had one as well. Uh, theirs was uh, a, a few months ago. Obviously, they were not in lockdown at that time. Uh, Tasmania had one very early on when they um, uh, first closed their borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, West Australia um, has uh, has had a, a voucher scheme as well. So a few states are doing this voucher scheme to either get people to go back to their um, their, their dining and eating out or, or travelling. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I just was going to ask you, Louis, I know you've got a holiday booked for next week or a mini getaway, but are you yeah. taking an extended holiday and actually putting your, your money out and um, and taking one yourself? Uh, yeah, over Christmas I'm going to have a good switch off for, uh, for, for two weeks over that time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really important for me to have Fantastic. that reset. Yeah. yeah. Well, if the uh, financial advisor says yes, we can all do it. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to go to a quick break and we'll come back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Okay, welcome back. Now we're going to throw over to Brett. Now, Brett, you're going to talk us through some stamp duty changes that could be coming uh, through nationwide pretty soon. Well, potentially, Steph, it's uh, there's, there's a bit of a groundswell to say it's time to abolish stamp duty, uh, which was introduced in 1865. Um, and even the, the Ken Henry Review in 2008, he identified it as being inconsistent with the needs of a modern tax system and should be should be replaced with a more efficient means of raising revenue. Hey, Brett, uh, Brett yeah. I've, got, I've got an idea. Why don't we introduce the GST and uh, and get rid of um, – uh, why don't we introduce a brand-new tax called a GST and get rid of stamp duty like we were supposed to? Well, we could go back to even further than 2008 and actually commit to that, couldn't we? That's a, that's yeah. a 20-year-old idea, Joel. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't the GST supposed to get rid of stamp duty uh, 20 years ago? Uh, But then I think the Democrats stepped in and said, no, we need to make sure that GST is not on everything, only about 60% of the goods. So then the states said, well, we can't get rid of stamp duty as a result of that. Where are the the Democrats today? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, the, the reason it's become more prominent, uh, particularly this week, is the New South Wales budget was released uh, and they've tabled a plan to abolish stamp duty. Uh, so it doesn't mean that property buyers and owners are going to get away free of tax. It just means it would be a reform that would replace stamp duty, which is a tax payable at the time of settling on a property uh, with an ongoing property tax, similar to what the land tax is currently. Uh, but in, in, so instead of paying the one-off property purchase, the, the one-off payment uh, at the time of purchase, yeah, it would be an annual tax charged every year on the value of land, pretty similar to what they do in a lot of other countries. Uh, the new system, so the, the Treasurer of New South Wales has said it will be the Netflix of property tax. So, <laughs> I would have to say Joel would have to endorse this because he's a big believer in that recurring revenue subscription model. So if you buy a, if you buy a property, you're subscribing to an ongoing tax if this is the way it plays out. <laughs> I like it from the revenue generator's point of view, not, not necessarily from the consumer's point of view, but hey, <laughs> it is what it is. Hey, Brett, I was going to ask about stamp duty. Are we still one of the highest or the highest in the world? Pretty much, yeah. I've got what the state's breakdown is. Um, so New South Wales, where they're, they're looking to do this reform, uh, and I have actually heard from some other people in financial services, so accounts and auditors I've spoken to in the last week that believe a similar announcement might be coming in Victoria. And New South Wales, so 24% of New South Wales tax revenue currently comes from stamp duty, which was around $9 billion. Uh, and one of the big wow. reasons I probably want to abolish it is, well, through COVID, there's been limited, especially in Victoria, there's been lower transactions which means it's really inconsistent, whereas a, an ongoing land tax would mean you're paying it regardless. So they'd say it's going to be a bit more of a reliable revenue stream. A lot of these taxes are generally going to be linked somewhat to the value of property. Uh, certainly that's the model in the United States where um, properties are valued every year and, uh, and the taxes are based off the value of the property. Uh, and that and that theory was supposed to hold a lot of local go local governments and uh, counties in good stead, uh, albeit that uh, during the GFC, when property prices fell by about thirty six percent, many of them fell found themselves in the, in a, in a similar financial difficulties as perhaps what Victoria found themselves in uh, as a result of low transaction numbers uh, as a result of COVID. Yeah. So maybe they'll introduce a high watermark on, on all of them. <laughs> you know, once it reaches a certain value, the tax can't fall below. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, but Steph, yeah, in terms of, of where we are um, across the country, so New South Wales has, uh, a, so every state has like thresholds and ranges. So it's, it's not black and white. It's not a flat percentage. It, it varies according to the value of the property and, and different thresholds. Uh, and if you look at each state, New South Wales, uh, its stamp duty can get up to 7% on high value property. Right. Uh, Queensland gets up as high as 5 and 3 quarter percent. South Australia, the highest rate is 5.5%. Tasmania is lower at 4.5%. Western Australia, the highest rate is 5 and 5.15%. Victoria, our rate gets as high as 5.5%. Interestingly, uh, the two territories have slightly different systems. So Northern Territories isn't very clear in terms of how it operates. So there's a calculator that's easier to work through. But the ACT have already started the transition away from stamp duty and onto land taxes. Mm. So What's the, can I, I've, got, I've got actually not, not much idea between the two of them. What is the difference between stamp duty and land tax? 
Okay, so stamp duty is purely, it's, it's a tax payable on the purchase. So it's purely at the time you settle, you, you would pay the, the, the vendor of your property, whatever the purchase price is, and then the state revenue office of, of the state you bought in would then issue you with a bill for a tax on that, on that purchase, which is up to that, that percentage we mentioned. Whereas with no. land tax, similar to when you get a rates notice for, for any landowner or property owner, your local council issues you with a rates notice and, and there's typically a valuation in there of, of the property, a rateable valuation, uh, and then you pay rates according to that value as a, you know, like there's a formula for the, you know, the X amount of cents per dollar of value. And so, so are you land- saying though that the vendor would miss out if they moved to a land tax situation? No, no, the vendor doesn't get the tax. Not at it's all. It's just just taken off. Yeah, well, it's, it's like any any business that charges GST. The tax gets remitted to the ATO. It's right. just that okay. stamp duty is, is not it's not remitted to the tax office. It's it's given to the yeah. state's revenue office of every state. Yeah, just sounds very complex too. Like the way it's that it's set up. Whereas yeah. Um, so, so who would actually enforce the land taxes? I would assume it would be state governments again, because stamp duty is a state-based revenue. Uh, mm-hmm. So, we would assume it would be the state, and it would be the state revenue officers just replacing one obligation with another. I would assume, uh, and it'd just be billed annually. So, rather than having to come up with five or six percent of the purchase price at the time you buy a property, you would be probably paying somewhere between half and one percent per year for the life of the property. So you better system, you would say? Uh, well, much better, much better. <laughs> better for governments. If you if you're if you're owning a property for let's say it's half a percent of the value of the property, and uh, and you own a property for ten years, well, there's essentially five uh, percent in tax that you would have paid over that period of time. But remember that that tax would have been revalued up as the value of the property goes up, and also revalued down as the property goes down. If you're owning that property for longer than 10 years, um, then you're probably going to be in a worse position because stamp duty in in Victoria, for instance, is a maximum of 6% at the highest bracket. Is that right, Brett? 6%? 5.5. So anything more than about 10 years, and then perhaps you're probably looking at being in a worse position under a recurring revenue model. Yeah. Mm, okay. What I mentioned there, that half to 1%, that's that's not known at this stage what the rates would be if they do move to this. But you would assume it would be somewhere around that. And, and Brett, do you have a, a rough time frame on when this would all be sort of implemented or is it just sort of pie in the sky at the moment? So the the document that was floated by the New South Wales Treasury is, is just a document. It's, it's not official. It's been put forward as a proposal and then obviously it'll, it'll go through the necessary means to be approved. Uh, but I think if, if New South Wales being the biggest state and the highest population do it, it would almost sort of be the catalyst for other states to follow suit. Mm. Brett, I'll think mm-hmm. of the usual public outcries to this kind of thing, which would be uh, two things. First would be think of the first homeowners and the other would be think of the pensioners. Spot on, Louis, and they're the two that are mentioned uh, the most about this yeah. and, and the likely impacts will Pensioners weren't so much mentioned a lot because they said that um, the downsizers, which I'll, I'll categorise pensioners as part of the downsizer group or the older, yep. older demographic, they actually think it's probably going to be better for them because it would make it a lot easier for them to downsize because they won't have that prohibitive one-off cost mm. of downsizing. Yeah, uh, that's true. So if they're looking at their lifespan saying, well, we don't know whether we're going to live in this for five or ten years, do we want to be paying that forty or $50,000 to move house as just mm. a, you know, a sunk cost? You can't get it back. 
Yeah. What about for, for um, you know, people that are in their 20s, 30s and 40s though, would, would that change your perspective on people purchasing a property and getting it done before this reform sort of comes in? I don't think so. I think if anything, you would, if you knew this was coming and, and you were considering it as a purchasing thing, you would, you would probably wait because it means you have to have less money up front. Yeah, yeah, but I'd just be worried that you're paying more over a longer period of time. Like that's my my thing. If you're keeping a property, you just it's like paying more. Huh? Well, there would also be a phasing program in place. So that what they would probably do is that anyone that has purchased uh, under this current regime of of stamp duty would probably have a grace period of. Uh, they might just set a number of years, ten or fifteen, and saying, well, if you've owned a property for longer than that, we start to charge this, the. The land tax. Yeah, the rate. Okay. Yeah. So it wouldn't yeah. be exempt from it for life, I wouldn't imagine. Mm. Uh, uh, interesting, though. I, when when I did my real estate uh, course at the REIV uh, a couple of years ago, um, a few years ago now, uh, the the teacher there suggested that uh, on average in Victoria, uh, uh, most people turn their houses over every seven years. Now that's an average. Obviously, there's people that own their homes for. 20 and 30 years, but on average, um, most uh, the the average turnover rate is about every seven years. That's that's interesting because that's a lot higher than I would have expected. Like that's a, a quicker turnaround. I would have thought people are holding much longer than that, as a general rule. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I guess that sounds about right because you do hear of people that you know buy a property or you know enter the market at one level. You know they have they kids, through. family grows, they need to move it within a two or three year span rather than ten. So, yeah, I would say that figure would still hold up. And remember, that that also takes into account home flippers and uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. you know, yeah. pe people who are active in the real estate market selling within very short spaces of time as well. So, you know, an average is an average. Yeah. I tell you what, though, moving house is just such a pain of a thing, isn't it? I mean, everyone's gone through that. It's just horrific. <laughs> so. It is. But if you're now paying $40,000 less uh, for, for moving house because you're not paying stamp duty, uh, you do it. You'll, you'll <laughs> be willing to put a couple of extra grand in the in the movers to come and uh, use their yeah. their packing services as well as their moving services. Uh, when we moved interstate, um, those guys that come and wrap your fragile stuff, uh, it's absolute gold. They're just machines when it comes to uh, putting fragile stuff in boxes and un emptying your kitchen shelves and chucking it in boxes and then in the in the truck. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, Steph. Even even think about from our perspective and, and what we talked about many, many times over the past 10 years, um, we rented for the last 10 years and mm. uh, the primary reason why we rented was because we we never felt as though we wanted to buy a property that was substandard to what we uh, ultimately wanted or we had to compromise on what we ultimately wanted because it was such a large amount of money to just waste on stamp duty if we decided yeah. that. We wanted to get out of there three or four or five years later. The the the, the cost of that transaction was just too significant. So yeah, they kept point. us in the rental market for for probably a good four or five years longer than what we uh, otherwise perhaps would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting way of looking at it. That's um yeah, I didn't see it like that. So interesting. And Steph, for for first home buyers, it, it's prob if it does come about, they would have a big positive boost out of this because a lot of the time the first homeowner's grant is going to that will stay um, mm. and the concessions that have been available for for stamp duty for first homeowners is, is probably going to be moved to a, to an additional grant 
Uh, where the real upside for them is that they don't have to save as much because they're not having to come up with this stamp duty at settlement. Yeah, I've got a question though. With the land tax, how often is this land tax going to increase on an annual or, you know, every couple of years basis? If it's similar to the land tax that's in place now, it's reviewed whenever they, you know, the, they, the council or the state government have like a valuation system that they work with local councils on. Uh, yeah. And I believe it's done every two years at the moment. Um, and that can move up or down, as Joel alluded to. Typically, it only moves up. Um, but I would assume it would be annually or, or every two years that it would be revalued. Right. So, and in essence, it could increase every every year. Yeah. And land tax is also based on the size of your property or the how is that sort of measured? Well, it's typically the they, they call it a, a rateable value for, for rates so or a capital improved value. So they look at the land and the dwelling on it and they, they put an assumed value on that and then they run their formula over it. Right, yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to see if they actually uh, go ahead and implement it. So I'm sure we'll be watching and you'll be watching. Yeah, definitely. Well, look, even if they do, I would say it, it wouldn't be implemented, I would say, for at least 12 months by the time they figure out the plan, get all the necessary things in place and then have the system to roll it out. So it's being tabled at the moment. It's getting a lot of momentum. And if we do hear announcements from other states that they're planning it as well, I think it'll be become a reality probably in the next couple of years. Brett, just, just sorry, just a clarity, mate. Um, uh, rates are based on the capital improved value, but land taxes is, is based on the uh, assessed land content of the uh, land value, not uh, not the capital improved value. Sure. Yes, that's that's Victoria's current land tax regime, which sits on top of the stamp duty regime. So um, maybe that'll change if, yeah. if, uh, if Victoria goes a similar way to New South Wales. Yeah. Interesting stuff. All right, guys, well, we're going to have to wrap that session up there and um, we're going to come back after this short break. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Okay, welcome back, guys. Now, we're just going to have our final segment for the day. It's just a quick market update from Joel. Thanks, Steph. Yes, look, uh, I've spoken quite a fair bit in recent weeks about the technical position of the market. That is, you know, what's the underlying supply and demand fundamentals that are uh, supporting the, the, the US stock market that then feeds into most stock markets around the world. Uh, today, I want to talk more broadly around the macroeconomic uh, positioning. Um, and, uh, and just take a temperature check on where we're at with regards to uh, economic activity and, and what that might suggest for markets moving forward. Uh, no doubt that uh, most of the world is now in uh, a well-entrenched recovery cycle uh, and we tend to look at a, a range of different areas when it comes to trying to get an assessment of how the 
uh, economy at large, the global economy and the, and the local economies are performing so that we can get some sense of where we should be deploying our funds and, uh, and some sense of where we might be in the economic cycle, uh, which also helps us determine where we might be in the investment cycle. And so I thought I might just quickly run through some of the, uh, the current positionings of uh, some of the key economic indicators that we look at from a broader macro perspective. Uh, first of all, we start with the valuations of the stock market. And, and right now, if we're having a look at the Australian stock market, Australian stock market sitting at a historical price to uh, earnings ratio of 21.68 times, which is quite a, quite a frothy valuation, to be honest with you. This is... Um, we haven't seen this level of valuation in in probably since the GFC when earnings were uh, significantly depressed and uh, and the PE ratio exploded. I think it's important to note though you've got to treat valuation in the early stage of a recovery uh, with a little bit of a grain of salt, um, largely because of the of the point that uh, earnings are depressed. So so the multiple, the price to earnings ratio when the denominator is depressed, is going to give you a, a, a larger or higher than usual reading. So at this point in time, while the PE ratio on the ASX is quite high, and it's very high also in the US stock market uh, and in many other markets around the world, um, the US stock market, the S&P 500, is trading on a price-to-earnings ratio of 28.2 times, and the S NASDAQ is trading on a very frothy 36.8 times uh, uh, earnings. I think it's important to understand, though, that you can often see some very high P ratios as you're coming out of the the final stages of, a, of an economic decline, like what we what, what we have seen with uh, COVID, uh, and we saw a similar sort of event uh, during the GFC as well. So I'd sort of put that aside, to be honest with you. And what we're, what I'm more interested in is what's going on in the financial system, and where are we at from a sentiment uh, perspective, and what's going on with the consumer. So when we have a look at, uh, we, we typically try to gauge how much financial stress is in the economy. And right now, to be honest with you, there's very little financial stress at all, uh, both on a local level and on a global level. We actually have seen that, we can measure that by having a look at uh, the yield curve. Uh, and when, um, when uh, central banks are being very loose with their policy, their monetary policy, you'll almost always see the short end of the interest rate curve, that's being the, you know, anything less than 12 months, uh, would be significantly less in terms of interest rates being demanded versus the long end of the yield curve, which is where you start to look at it five years, 10 years, 30 years. Uh, in a normal yield curve environment, you should see a, you should see longer term interest rates being higher than shorter term interest rates. We're actually seeing that right now, and because of the monetary stimulus and the and the financial support that's being provided by central banks, uh, that yield curve is steepening uh, around the globe, uh, and has been steepening um, uh, uh, fairly consistently over the last six months. Is, is uh, that a healthy thing, Joel? Is it the steepening that, of the yield curve? That's, that's a very healthy thing. Yes, it means that uh, monetary conditions are, are, are quite loose, um, and, uh, and and central banks are supportive because. Central banks largely uh, influence the yield curve at the short end uh, by raising the intra, uh, intraday funding uh, or the overnight funding rates. So when, when, our, when our central bank, the Reserve Bank, uh, increases or lowers interest rates, they're doing it uh, in the overnight cash rate. Uh, it's the same thing with, uh, with the Federal Reserve and the ECB. European central banks and all of the major central banks, they tend to play around with the short-term interest rates. 
Um, quantitative easing is where they tend to target the longer term, uh, longer term interest rates. But that's only become a recent phenomenon over the last decade through the use of uh, quantitative easing. But nevertheless, um, a, a normal yield curve means that banks can make money because they borrow from us as depositors at the short term, lend to us as borrowers on the long term, and they make the interest differential between short term and long term interest rates. So in a, in a nice steep yield curve environment, that means that banks are, are being able to operate in a, in a profitable manner. And the steeper that yield curve, the more profitable it is for banks to operate, which, which encourages them to lend. Um, and, uh, and that's why uh, central banks play around with the short end of the yield curve, predominantly to try and make it more or less profitable for banks to lend, which increases the supply of credit, which helps uh, with uh, economic uh, growth, driving economic growth. Yeah, look, I, I don't see uh, I don't see central banks uh, changing their their interest rate stance or their policy stance for for some time. In fact, most of the world's central banks have indicated that this accommodative stance is probably likely to persist for anywhere between the next three to five years. Okay. Uh, uh, when we have a look at actual financial stress and the risk premia that uh, is in the market and and what uh, lenders are, are requiring from borrowers in terms of uh, more interest rate for more risk. Uh, financial stress is actually at very, very low levels. In fact, um, you know, right now uh, the OFR financial stress index, uh, which is the Office of Financial Research, uh, that uh, their indicator is suggesting that we're at levels which has pretty much been consistent with where we were during 2017, 18, and 19 prior to COVID. Right now, so we've had a full recovery in terms of what uh, lenders want in terms of their risk premium uh, and, it, and we're back to pretty much normal levels. Um, there is no premium uh, put on for, uh, high, for, for by lenders to borrowers to compensate for an increased level of risk. So lenders are feeling much more comfortable as well about being repaid. Um, when we take a look at the consumer, um, consumer sentiment in the United States uh, is, is, has been positive now for six months, um, uh, albeit it did take a little bit of a dip in October as a result of uh, heading into the US election. So I'm keen to see what consumer sentiment uh, looks like in the US as a result of the US election being held. Uh, but in Australia, um, even though uh, Victoria has been in a hard lockdown, consumer confidence uh, in Australia has now hit 107.7. So any a reading any reading above 100 suggests that consumers are feeling quite buoyant. Now this is actually the highest reading that we've seen since 2013. Now it's not popping up in retail sales at this point in time because consumer sentiment or consumer confidence is is generally considered a leading indicator. Uh, but if the consumer confidence number comes through and actually is realised, it should mean that we're in, in line for a fairly robust and buoyant six months of consumer retail spending uh, yep. here in Australia. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, so when, and so when we're also looking around the globe, while, um, while Europe and the UK look depressed, there's been signs of improvement in consumer confidence. Um, albeit it's been a little bit patchy. Uh, certainly in many parts around Asia, we're looking at Japan and, um, and, uh, and China, those two big uh, economies. Uh, consumer confidence is bouncing back quite nicely um, in, those two, in those two countries as well. Uh, and then let's take a look at unemployment. 
the United States, which is obviously the most uh, important economy in the in the in the globe right now, has seen its unemployment rate fall from a high of around about 14 point uh, in the high 14 percents back in April of this year to now be at just 6.9% unemployment rate. So wow. a huge, huge putting back to the workforce in the US over the last six months or so. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that also is, is quite conducive for a, a strengthening and improving US economy, which should feed into US stocks. And I note also Goldman Sachs just, the, just yesterday morning announced uh, their forecast for 2021 they are expecting off the back of this uh, huge fiscal stimulus uh, that is expected to come down the pipeline as a result of the Democrats uh, obtaining the presidency, um, low interest rates. They're expecting the US stock market, the S&P 500, to rise by 21% over 2021. So, um, you know, a lot of this macroeconomic picture uh, is, is seeing... Um, uh, many research houses and, and some of the bigger research houses come out with very robust and very bullish uh, forecasts for how they see the stock market performing next year. Uh, albeit that this year has actually been a very, very strong year for the US stock market, even with the major dip in between. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I think, uh, if you know, the way that we're positioning, we're fully invested um, and, uh, and we're expecting that... Um, Albeit that we're going to have some bumps along the way, no doubt with uh, some, you know, some places still going into lockdowns and, and dealing with hotspots. Mm. Uh, the trend is up. The trend is higher. Yeah. Economic yeah. E economic numbers support that. The technical numbers support that. And uh, I would not be betting against this market over the next 12 months. Yeah, inc incredibly optimistic. So yeah, really good to hear. Good signs. All right, guys, well, we're going to have to wrap up that last segment and go to our final uh, segment for the day, which is You Can't Be Serious. I'm going to pick on Louie this morning. What have you got for us? Uh, there's been a, a few things come out uh, in the news recently around uh, corruption, and uh, there was a, uh, a Labor member who's um, been embroiled uh, having cash found in his home. Um, but I found one from a couple of weeks ago that happened in Brazil where a um, one of the the senior leaders in the uh, in in the cabinet under Jair Bolsonaro, um, they raided his home, they found some cash, uh, and when the guy was uh, in the home, he said, "All right, well, you found this cash. Look, I just got to go to the bathroom." And when he turns, uh, the, the quote is that um, one of the uh, police officers saw a rectangular bulge from his underwear. <laughs> <laughs> so they asked if he had anything stuffed down his underpants and uh, he initially denied it, um, but then eventually came out and said, oh, okay, yep, yep, here's some, here's the cash from underwear. Uh, but it was not all of the bulge. It was not all gone. So they repeatedly asked him, and he kept denying it. And then they yeah. actually got to the point of doing uh, a, an actual search of his underwear, uh, and uh, came out with a little bit more. Good gracious. <laughs> well, that got rid of his rectangular bulge, didn't it? <laughs> it did. <laughs> all right, Brett. What have you got for us? Well, Pope Francis needs to be a little bit careful when he's using his official Instagram account. Uh, some some other Instagram followers of a particular lady who uh, posted a photo of herself in some very revealing school clothing against the locker uh, have noted that he liked it. Uh, oh, no. 
Oh. Uh, it was quickly removed, but not before quite a few people noticed it. Um, and even the uh, the poster herself saying that uh, my mum may hate my ass pics, but the boat be double tapping. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You wouldn't have even known. That is epic. <laughs> oh, wow. Whoops. Yeah, total. Instagram. Yeah. Joel, what have you got for us? Well, my mate Dan, Chairman Dan, he's back at it again, flexing his muscle. Uh, pays not to criticise Chairman Dan here in Victoria, uh, as one uh, CEO has discovered. Orica CEO Alberto Calderon was one of seven CEOs joined uh, who, who wrote an open letter to the Premier requesting that he spend more attention on trying to reopen uh, the Melbourne CBD and bringing office workers back to work, only to then have his offices raided by the uh, DHHS a couple of weeks later oh. as a little bit of a, are you working uh, in a COVID safe uh, manner? Whoa. So uh, Mr. Andrews uh, suggests that it has nothing to do with the criticism that he received from those CEOs. Uh, but uh, we certainly know that Dan Andrews has enjoyed the power, the increased power that he's had uh, as a result of these COVID, uh, uh, these COVID measures that have been put in place. Mm, very big coincidence, but yeah, keeping him on his toes, I'd say. <laughs> All right, guys, well, we're going to have to wrap it up there for the day, but just before we go, I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to my little sister, Ali, who listens religiously to this podcast and is really not interested in hearing from me. Is she really likes listening to Joel. So uh, shout out to Ali. Um, I'll get you for that. But, uh, you know, she's your number one fan, Joel, so, as you know. <laughs> and it was nice to see you last night, Ali. <laughs> have nice. a good weekend, guys. Good to see you, Ali. Yeah. yeah. Right. Have a good one Cheers and um, hope you get some sunshine. Indeed. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks, listeners. Have a great Thanks. weekend.